Our Father, we pray that you would help me explain things clearly from Romans 8. We pray that you would help us all to listen, to engage, and to wrestle that we might understand. We pray, Lord, for help in particular for those of us really battling with sin and feeling like, as Christians, we are losing that battle. And help those of us, Lord, who are not yet convinced Christians to understand what it means to be a Christian and to make that step, that decision of faith to follow Jesus. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. Now, I've been encouraging you as we study Romans 8 to work with me at uh, this uh, chapter. It is not easy, and uh, I encourage you to listen online if you miss a Sunday, or listen online if you didn't miss a Sunday and didn't understand a Sunday. Uh, somebody uh, asked me uh, last week, uh, what are you looking to achieve through these talks in Romans 8? What is the fruit? What is the practical outcome? It's a good question. It may have been a loaded question. It might have been an implied question, which meant I have no idea what you're trying to get out of Romans 8. It is, though, a good question. What is the outcome I am looking for? Well, the outcome I am looking for is the outcome Paul is looking for, and it's this. He's saying, hold your horses till you get to Romans 12 and all the practical stuff kicks in about how to do stuff day by day. He said, hold your horses until you get your heads around what it means to be a Christian. Paul wants to clear out the fog of kind of half-knowledge of what it means to be a Christian and get clarity of understanding. So what's the fruit that we understand? And of course, when we do, it is profoundly liberating and helpful for living the Christian life. Now, this week and next, you'll see on the sheet, uh, Walking According to the Spirit, Part 1 and Part 2. And what I want to do this week is uh, walk through with us to uh, verse 13 so that we understand Paul's logic or God's logic as to what it means to live as a Christian. And then next week, God willing, just focus on one verse. Because we have got our heads around what it means to be a Christian, therefore, come on, this is how we make progress. Put to death the deeds of your body. We're going to understand by the end of today how to do that. And next week, we'll look at the practicalities of what it means. So, uh, walking according to the Spirit. The first heading on the uh, service sheet is confusion about the Christian life. I, I think uh, when Paul writes uh, Romans, he, he wants us to be clear about a number of things. He wants us to be clear about the fact that through Christ's death, we uh, can be set free from the penalty for sin, which is uh, what he means when he says you have no condemnation. And he gets to that conclusion by uh, chapter 3 and verse uh, 21. So his uh, argument up to chapter 3 is that we cannot 
live in such a way that we can, on our own efforts and by what we do, be declared righteous in God's sight and receive no condemnation, the removal of that penalty. And uh, his conclusion, uh, the great uh, uh, revelation of the gospel in chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through Jesus Christ. So through his death, we can be fully and completely forgiven the penalty for sin is gone. Now, Paul wants us to be clear on that, to understand that. But he also wants us to be clear, and this is what he wrestles with in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Big, big section of Romans. He wants us to be clear in our minds, not simply that we've been freed from the penalty for sin, but what has happened in our lives now as we live out our lives in this world as Christians, that we've been freed from the the power of sin, its dominion over us, and one day we will be freed from the very presence of sin. It's very helpful that that, uh, Paul really gets into the grist to the mill of the reality of what it's like to live every day as a Christian. And he's saying to us, look, I understand what it's like to live as a Christian every day in the battle with sin. I understand what it's like to live as a Christian every day when anxiety and fear about death and illness and sickness and what is going in the world is within touching distance. It's right there with me. How do I reconcile all that with who I am as a Christian? Yes, Paul says, your status is not condemned. Yes, you have been declared righteous in God's sight. But what about the battle with sin? How do you get through another week? What about the fears and the battles with sickness and in death? Now, on to the text of uh, Romans 8. It is the battle with sin that is going on in Paul's mind and in his uh, life. Just to clarify a question that uh, one of you asked me at coffee time. You know, it does really encourage me that you ask me questions about Romans in coffee time before I preach it. Somebody said, is it absolutely true that Romans chapter 7, when Paul kind of wrestles with what he feels are two persons at work in him, that he is speaking about what it's like to be a Christian? Absolutely. That's Paul as a Christian in chapter 7. And of course, it's true, isn't it, what he says, this battle that he thinks is between two people in him. He says, wretched man that I am. It's his sin. That's Paul speaking as a Christian. And uh, what does he say to himself and to us in that ongoing battle with sin that causes us to doubt, despair, and to struggle? Well, he reminds us, chapter 1, verse 8, that there is no condemnation. Now, Romans 8 is not about no condemnation. I'm clear on that now. It's not about that. So why does he say it in chapter 8, verse 1? Because whatever else he is going to say to us, and his line of argument is about the Christian life in the battle with sin, whatever else he's going to say to us, he says, whatever else, remember that. So here he is in the middle of chapter 7 and 8, wrestling with sin in his life. And suddenly he remembers chapter 3, verse 21. Whatever else is happening, no condemnation. He kind of takes that truth and brings it back into the present. No condemnation. But then verse 2, 3, 4, 5 onwards, he's back into the Christian life and the battle with uh, sin. So, he's going to help us with that battle. 
But never forget, never forget in the battle, chapter 8, verse 1. And really what he's saying, I guess, is never forget any of it. Remember it all. Sometimes I think that uh, he puts uh, chapter 8, verse 1 in, and this is a bit irreverent, uh, because he, he thinks that the preacher might not be able to explain verses 2 to 14, and you might not understand it. So whatever else you remember when you go home from church, no condemnation, now I dread, and you're doing pretty well. Okay? You're all looking shocked. <laughs> that could be the case. Now, he's not saying that, but it, you see, as a Christian, you've got to remember that whatever else, boom, no condemnation in the end. Now, verse 2 we looked at last week in detail. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. It's on the Christian life. We paraphrase verse 2 as something like this. A change has taken place in your inner being, in your control center, the very center of what it is that you are and who you are, that has liberated you, that has set you free from the sovereignty, the mastery, the dominion of sin in your life. Sin is no longer your sovereign and your master. You've been set free by the invasion of the Holy Spirit into the the battlefield of sin that is your body. Set free. Now, if verse 2 is true, and of course we believe with all our heart that it is, it is wonderfully encouraging. Let me just pause there and, uh, and, and, and put a footnote in. Here's another conversation I had after the first service. Somebody said to me, why is it that I know these things in my head, Romans 8, but don't feel them in my life? That's exactly the point. You cannot base Christian truth. You cannot base what you believe on how you feel. You cannot do that. You cannot base it on how you feel. You base it on what you know. Because we feel like sin has a sovereignty over us much of the time. We feel anxious much of the time. But we know in our heads, that's what Paul is saying, get clear in your heads. And sometimes that invades your hearts and your lives and your minds and your emotions. Get your head clear as to who you are in Christ. And he's saying, I think, that not until we are with Christ in the new creation will what we know be matched 100% by what we feel. That's what he's saying. Now, if verse 2 is true and we believe it is, uh, what's the, the logic that Paul builds up to convince us that it is? Now, you'll see the logic set out in these very short and simple headings on the service sheet. Okay, let me take you through it. This, I think, is what Paul is saying. So he's saying, verse 3, in dealing with sin... In dealing with sin in your life, God has done in Christ what the law could not do. Lots of stuff to define in there. So that, he's done it, so that through the indwelling Spirit, which lives in you, and because the Spirit lives in you, the Spirit imparts to you what Christ has won for you on the cross And therefore, now you can begin to live a righteous life, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's who you are. Then he says, walking in the Spirit means you do not walk according to the flesh. And I'll explain why he says that. And then finally, because of all of that, because the indwelling Spirit guarantees our future bodily resurrection, Our obligation now is by the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. 
And when I was speaking at the conference yesterday, the person introduced me and said, um, Robin's going to speak on this, whatever. And he said, he's got the best slot. He's got the 11 o'clock slot. Okay? So I, I'm confident that you guys are fully awake and fully engaged for the 11.30 slot. Okay? And if your mind drifts off and you think the person's mind next to you is drifting off, just give them a strong nudge. Okay? We have no idea just how important it is that we get our heads around this stuff. It's life-changing. It really is. Now, first, in dealing with sin, God in Christ has done what the law could not do. That's uh, verse 3. Let's read it. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. What does Paul mean in verse 3 by the law? Well, he means the law of Moses or the commandments, the Old Testament law. Now, what was the Old Testament law? What was its purpose? It was written law. It was instructions. It was commandments. You shall do, you shall not do. That if followed would constitute a righteous life. Later in Romans, Paul describes the fulfillment of the law or the following of the law as the life of love, the life of perfect obedience, of godliness, of righteousness. Now, when we think as Christians of the Old Testament law, it is easy for us to think of it negatively in the sense that the law was bad. That is not true. The law inherently was good. We tend to think of the law as bad because we read so often in our Bibles about the misuse or the perversion of the law. Or we tend to think of the law as bad in the sense of inadequate because the law always bore witness to the fact that something was needed to save us apart from the law. The law that God gave his people was inherently good. In giving the law, God brought honor and glory to himself. The law inherently was good. The problem was not the law. The problem is indwelling human sin. Now that is what Paul says. Look at what he says in the verse. God has done what the law, inherently good, weakened by the flesh. That just means the unconverted person, the sinful person at the very core of their being. God has done what the law, good, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could never be fulfilled in the sense of the righteous life, the life of love, because the law is fundamentally weakened by sinful humanity, the sinful flesh. Now, let me illustrate like this. Take the law. Yep, here it is, the written code, the commandments. And take a sinful uh, human being. Bring that sinful human being into contact with the law. And what happens? At the very best, not a lot. Yeah, because the law, when it meets a sinful human being, cannot deal 
with what is necessary for the law to work in that human being to lead to a righteous life because the law which is outside of us cannot deal with a problem, the real problem which is inside of us, which is endemic, indwelling, powerful sin. The law at its best can simply reveal to us how much we need something that the law cannot do to change us from the inside out. Now, that is the best that can happen when the law, which is good, meets a sinful human being. At worst, when the law meets a sinful human being, when the law comes into contact with a sinful human being, the law, which is inherently good, is twisted and perverted and changed and transformed. And instead of leading us to a righteous life, which is the intended purpose and fulfillment of the law, it leads to what? Self-righteousness. Think of it in terms of religion. At its best, religion, living by the law, living by rules, living by commandments, living by rituals, at its best, it says to us, I need something more. At its worst, and it does its worst more often than does its best. At its worst, religion, living with that kind of mindset, I will do this, live like this in order to be accepted by God. At its worst, what it does is that it leads you and I to a position of self-righteousness in the way we live. And it's a dead end because of our sin. Now, what is necessary is a transformation inside of us at the very core of our being. And that is what God in Christ has done. That is what Paul is saying. God in Christ has done what the law could never do. God in Christ, as one Bible commentator said, has gone for the jugular. The real problem at the core of our being is the problem of indwelling sin and the mastery of that indwelling sin in our lives. So what has God done in Christ? Look at what Paul says carefully in the text, verse 3, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. What has God done? By sending his own Son, by sending the Son of God, by sending the eternal Son, by sending someone who is fully God in the likeness of human flesh, sinful flesh, fully human. That's the point, yet without sin. Literally in the likeness of you and I in every way but sinless flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? For sin. Sent to deal with the root problem. How? He, God, condemned sin, our sin. Paul means in the flesh, in Christ's sinless flesh. What does it mean that God condemned our sin in Christ's sinless flesh? What happened at the moment Christ died? Sin was condemned or sin was done to death, literally. Sin was killed. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, sin was nailed to the cross and killed. 
And therefore, for those who believe in Christ, there is no longer any penalty for sin because sin was killed. And for those who believe in Christ, sin's power, dominion, the control center of our very beings was killed. And because Christ died, the very presence of sin in our bodies and in the world, the nail was nailed into that coffin. Literally, as we'll see. And so it means that you and I, as we sit here this morning, are dead. Dead. Dead to sin. It's dead. It's gone. Its penalty is gone. Its power, its dominion is gone. And its presence is guaranteed to have gone. Not to go. To have gone. Future perfect tense. That's what Christ's death achieved. Now, Christ's death achieved all that stuff. Yeah? It saved us from the penalty of sin. It saved us from the power of sin. And it will save us from the presence of sin. Three lines. Which of these lines is Paul running with here in Romans 8? Verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. He's running with a middle line. Yeah? He's not focusing on the fact that Christ's death has saved us from the penalty, no condemnation. He's saying, never forget that. His line is about the Christian life, the day-to-day stuff. What do you need to know to live out your Christian life tomorrow and through the rest of this week when you battle with sin? What's your mindset? What's your framework? What are you going to do to make progress, to get out of that battle? That's the line he's running with in verses 4 and following. How do we know? Well, look what he says. By sending his son, verse 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Why has he done that? Why has he condemned sin in Christ's sinless flesh? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, inside of us who walk. It's a Christian life. He's talking about walking, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, Paul is talking about what Christ's death has achieved for us now in the Christian life, in the day-to-day walk. And I hope you see that the text persuades us that that's the dimension of Christ's death and its achievement that he's talking about. Yes, the penalty for sin is gone. Praise God. But what I need you to know, Paul says, and what I need to know is how the gospel intersects, impacts my life right here and now in my struggles. And I need to know, and this is the marvelous stuff that Paul unloads for us here, that I really can make progress in the Christian life. I really can get over this pit, this trough, this battle with sin. Here's how. Now, I've paraphrased uh, verse uh, 4. You'll see it on the sheet there. Uh, I'll just try to express it in in a slightly different way. Through the indwelling Spirit, which imparts to us the achievements of Christ's death, we can begin now to live a righteous life walking according to the Spirit. Now, let me explain. When we turn to Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and we receive all the benefits of Christ's death. And uh, Paul, as I've said, is speaking here in verse 4 about how Christ's victory over the power, the dominion of sin, is imparted to us through the Holy Spirit, so we can begin now to live a righteous 
life. Now, here's his logic. Yeah, before conversion, the law, which is good, religion, which is inherently good, me, sinful human being. Law, religion, hits me. It just perverts the law, which is good, and it tells me that there is no way on earth I can live a righteous life. It's a dead end. I need some inner transformation to happen to me. Christ died. He killed sin. The achievement of Christ to break the power of sin in the human being's life is appropriated to me, or his achievements are mine, literally, they are inside of me because Christ is inside of me by the Holy Spirit. His victory on the cross over the power of sin is a victory that is physically, literally, inside of me now in my body because the Holy Spirit has invaded my person, my body. That's what he's saying. Therefore, for the first time in your life, from the point of your conversion, when you receive the benefits of Christ's death, you can begin now to live the righteous life that is the true fulfillment of the requirement of the law, which is the life of love, the righteous. How can you fulfill that for the first time? Because God, by His Spirit, lives in you. And because He lives in you, what lives in you is the power of sin that is dead. That's what he's saying. You can get your heads around that. And it's getting your heads around that that helps you live the Christian life. That helps you realize and me to realize that we can make progress in the Christian life. Now, Paul is not advocating in verse 4 perfection. And, and, and lots of people in the past have, have said, look, if you live in this way by the Spirit, you will reach a higher life, a perfection, a, a sinless life. That is not true. Until we are at our life's end and we have sinless body, sin will still always reside in us. Paul is not saying we will reach perfection. But in saying often as Christians, oh, you're not going to reach perfection. Don't, don't listen to any teaching that says that. We've, we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we basically give in and say we cannot make real progress. We cannot make progress to righteous living. We cannot make progress to live a life of love. We cannot get over the sin that has plagued me and battled at me for years. Oh, yes, we can. That's what he's saying. We can make real progress in the Christian life. The Christian life is not about living out our days and hanging on. It's about pilgrims making progress on the road to glory. That's what he is saying in verse 4. You know, you, you, you'll think of, of a famous text in the Bible, like Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, righteousness, love. What is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law. What's the law saying? The righteous life. You can't do that because of sin. Deal with sin. The Spirit comes in you. What is the fruit of the Spirit? The righteous requirements of the law. Now you can do it. Life, love, joy, peace, righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is what you need to seek in your life, not works. 
It's inside out, not outside in. It's fruit. Now, uh, quickly, really to set us up for next week, you have a little breather now. Okay, let your mind go somewhere else. You're doing really well, or you're just being kind to me, one or the other. Sometimes I stand up here and I say, I'm really, really excited and praying that you really get this in your minds. I really, really am, you know. It's so vital that we get clear in our minds of who we are as Christians. Blow out the fog. So here's, a, here's something that Romans 8 blows away while you're having a little breather, yeah? S- sort of stuff that is around that people think that when they become a Christian, they receive the, the saving benefits of Christ's death, fully forgiven. A little bit later in the Christian life, you might receive the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying is that you cannot receive anything at all from Christ's death unless the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's all at the same time. Or, or you might think that you're, you're justified, you're set right with God, and then a little bit later, maybe tomorrow or the day after, you begin to be sanctified change. Justification, sanctification. These two things happen at the same moment from the same point. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Now back to Romans. What's he saying in verses 5 to 9? Now what Paul is saying in verses 5 to 9 is making the point, and it's a mind point he's making. Get your heads around this. That walking according to the Spirit means we do not walk according to the flesh. So if you're a Christian here, even though you're experiencing the ongoing battle with sin in your life, you, you, you are... You are B and not A. You are a person who walks according to the Spirit. You are no longer A, a person who walks according to the flesh. It's the Christian and the non-Christian. A fundamental change has happened in the control center, the bit that dominates your life. That's what he's saying, 5 to 9. So, Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, what he means by set your minds here is, is not what I just said. I didn't mean that I was saying what Paul was saying. When he says set your minds, he means the, the whole orientation of who you are, your inner being, your control center, what it is that fundamentally defines you. That's what he means by set your minds. So he's saying those who live according to the flesh People who are unconverted, those who set their minds on living in rebellion against God, that's his description of people who are not Christians. That's not you if you're a Christian. You are someone who lives according to the Spirit and whose whole orientation, whose inner being, for whom the control center is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who lives in you is the dominant force. And the difference is one of fundamental orientation. When you became a Christian, at that point, you no longer walked according to the flesh. That's what he's saying. Even though the residual residue of sin, which has been killed, still haunts you until the day you die and you have sinful body. But you don't walk according to the flesh. You walk according to the Spirit. The control center, the real you, is a you where sin has been killed. The Holy Spirit living in you. That's what he's saying. And he elaborates in verses 6 to 9 on the difference between the two, for to set the mind 
on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. One is hostile to God, cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Somebody uh, over coffee else said to me, how do I know that the Spirit of Christ is living in me? Because I don't feel it. And I said to them, well, what does Paul say? Well, Paul says the Spirit of Christ is living in me if you get your heads around the fact that what Christ did when he died, you could not do. If you feel like Paul, chapter 7, wretched man that I am in the battle with sin, the Spirit of Christ lives in you. If your conscience has come alive that that is not a good thing, the Spirit of Christ lives in you. If you know in your heads that there is no condemnation, that you have everlasting life, because Christ has died, not by how you feel, the Spirit of Christ lives in you. If you're beginning to sense as you sit here, the possibility that a change has happened inside of your life at the control center of your very being, the Spirit of Christ lives in you. If you love Christ, think of him now, if you love Jesus more than you love the sin that you battle with, the Spirit of Christ lives in you. It's what we'll do next week. How do you deal with sin? It's what Thomas Chalmers, after whom this church is named, called the expulsive power of the affections. Love for the greater power of the greater person in your life allows you to put to death what has been killed by him. So, God willing, I sent that person home believing that the Spirit of God lives in them. Now, why does Paul uh, contrast these two states in uh, verses 5 to 9? Well, he does it so that we are clear whatever we feel that we are this person and not that person. Whatever we feel. You walk, if you are a Christian here, according to the Spirit, which means you do not walk according to the flesh. A fundamental change happened when we became a Christian. You're not living the Christian life with a battle going on for the person who has control over the sin lever in your life. That battle has been won. The person at the controls is God Himself, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who has the controls over sin ultimately in your life. And no one can take his hands off these controls. It is impossible. Romans 8 verse 31, no separation from Christ. We'll get to that sometime next year. Finally, verses 10 to 13. If that theme, remembering who you truly are in the battle with sin, remembering you're not this person, but you're this person now, he comes to verses 10 to 13. Let me read them as we close. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, O his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Now, I've summarized the verses on the sheet. Because the indwelling Spirit guarantees our future bodily resurrection, our obligation now is by the Spirit to put to death the mid-steeds of the bodies. Now, they're great verses to close with and begin with next week. And Paul is saying this. He's saying, the life you are living, the walk you are walking, will lead one day to your physical death. And uh, as hard as that will be, and there will be many tears, fills me with fear to think of what I'll be like when I die. It does. It really does. That's the way I'm wired. It doesn't fill my wife with fear. She's wired differently. It fills me with fear. It fills us with tears, doesn't it? Paul deals with that in the next bit of Romans 8, the second half. Hard as it will be to walk through the valley of the shadow of death or to walk or watch somebody go through the valley of the shadow of death. And Paul, wonderfully, in the second half of Romans 8, comes face to face with that. If the Spirit of Christ, if the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit of life who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Hard as death will be for the Christian, it is wonderful. Now, you might think that's entirely the wrong word to use. Why is it wonderful? Because at last, at last, the saving achievements of Christ's death will be yours in full. Not just the penalty gone, not just the power and the dominion overpowered, but the presence of sin that lingers still in your flesh and body, gone forever. Why does Paul say that at this point? Well, surely inconsistent with his line of argument is to point us forward to the time when we will be free from the very presence of sin, the sin that still lingers in our bodies, will be gone, finally gone. And with that day in mind, which is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit that lives in you, what's the proof that that will happen? The fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you. What's the proof that the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you means that will happen? That the Holy Spirit appropriates into my life the achievements of Christ's death. What does Christ's death achieve? The Spirit of God raised him from the dead. The same Spirit through that connection line into my heart will raise me from the dead when I will be free from the presence of sin that Christ killed on the cross. So with that day in mind, it's what Paul is saying, and with the fact that the Holy Spirit is at the control center of your inner being, and the power over sin has been defeated, put to death the deeds in your body that you owe nothing to, because all that will happen is they will die. So put them to death now and make progress in the Christian life. Paul is saying to us that what it is that has dogged you. Sometimes I think that when Paul speaks about the thorn in his flesh elsewhere in the New Testament, 
He's speaking about some sin that has dogged him. And here in Romans, he's beginning to realize that I can put that to death because Christ has killed its power over me because the Holy Spirit lives in me. Now, that, God willing, will be our focus next Sunday, how day to day we put to death the deeds of the body, how we kill sin, how we progress in the Christian life, how we kill sin that has been killed. You cannot ever defeat a sin in your life that is not a forgiven sin. Every sin in your life is a forgiven sin. You can defeat every and any sin in your life. Not all of them in this life. Because sin will still lurk in our bodies until the final nail. Well, it's literally true, isn't it? One of the old commentators describes this. The nail that goes into our coffin reminds us of the nail that went into our sin when Christ died on his cross. Now, it's hard. It's hard. But it's true. And it's wonderful in the end. Next week, how because of love for Christ, love for the Spirit, greater than the love for sin, and how because sin is dead and sin is forgiven, we can put to death sin and kill these forgiven sins that war with us day by day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand these great truths, hard as they are to grasp. We pray, Lord, for those of us struggling with sin, that as we get our heads around this, and as we practically consider how it is that we put to death these deeds in our body, that you would really help us to understand and do. Lord, we pray, too, that those of us perhaps uh, feeling the, the pain of, of, of loved ones who have died. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would assure us that to die in Christ means the final liberation that we will all one day realize if we are in him is the final, final victory over the very presence of sin. And Lord, for those of us who are not yet convinced Christians, by your Spirit, graciously help us to become so. That we might leave this place with all the achievements of Christ's death living in us by the Holy Spirit. How do we become Christians? Well, we turn to Jesus Christ, who alone is able to forgive us, who alone is able to change us, and who alone through his death is able to guarantee us life eternal in his new and everlasting creation. Help us as we sing, Lord, if we have not yet believed, to believe for your glory and the everlasting good and security of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.